Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Learning more about life from someone quite different from oneself is the message at the heart of Skunk and Badger, a recent children's book by Amy Timberlake. Though written for ages 8 through 12, Older readers can appreciate the clever humor in Skunk and Badger. Later in the hour, author Amy Timberlake will tell us how this story addresses stereotypes, bullying, and prejudice as well. First, pianist Malek Jandali has released a new recording continuing his musical quest to honor the heritage of his Syrian homeland. The album was commissioned by Queen's University of Charlotte in North Carolina. Dr. Dan Lugo is president of Queen's University. He's with us via Zoom, along with pianist Malik Jandali, Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Lewis. Malik, this is the 11th album in your musical journey, in your words, to preserve and promote the heritage of your Syrian homeland. Why did you make this particular album at this particular time? What a great question. My piano concerto is my first. Uh, it's a continuation of my musical journey, as you mentioned, to preserve what is left in my homeland, Syria. This week, we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of the uh, Syrian revolution for freedom and dignity. And within these 10 years, a lot of beauty has been lost in Syria. Monuments, people, brains. Uh, thank goodness. Nobody can touch music. <laughs> I'm the lucky one. <laughs> you know, nobody can see music or grab it or touch it. But my hope is that it will touch people's heart so we can all go back to our shared common human values of freedom, justice, and above all, truth and beauty. I thank you and I thank NPR for giving us and giving the Syrian children an elegant voice through this interview. Thank you. Dan. Queen's University commissioned the recording. How did the collaboration begin? Well, thank you for having us on the program to talk about this incredible partnership. Our community has a wonderful list of graduates, but none more prolific, more well-known internationally than Malik. And I had been told by many, I need to get to Atlanta and to meet Malik. And I did eventually on a trip to meet with other alumni and we hit it off instantly. Things happened very, very naturally. Malik felt compelled to return to the place that inspired many of his next steps in his career. And it made incredible sense as it aligned with our current moment at Queens to elevate the forming arts and how they engage with the, the community of Charlotte on a much, much more substantial level. So things came along quite well. And to think that we have born fruit with this piano concerto number one is just an incredible testament to Malik's creativity and our partnership. Malik, you were a student at Queens, and in fact, you received the university's 
first music scholarship. How did you find your way to Charlotte? That's a great story to share. I was at North Carolina School of the Arts. My roommate, believe it or not, was Sylvester Stallone's son. His name was Sage. And my scholarship stopped due to funding. So I was looking for competitions and uh, other schools so I can continue my education and keep my visa as a student. So I went to Tennessee. I uh, applied for a national scholarship and uh, I won it. And then my new roommate, he was from Concord, North Carolina. He was a vocalist, a tenor. He said, oh, why don't you come to Charlotte? You know, there's a great university. It's called Queens College at the time. And come meet the piano professor there. I said, okay, let's drive. So we drove to Charlotte. And for the first time, I met Dr. Paul Nitsch. I played for him my Rachmaninoff Etude and my Prokofiev Sonata. And instantly he picked up the phone and started calling trustees and friends to establish a scholarship to convince me to turn my current price with the Nashville Symphony and the University of Knoxville at the time to come to Queens. And I couldn't resist. The campus was beautiful. Paul was a, um, you know, we have a saying in Syria, once a teacher, always a father. And uh, he's still my American father, my mentor, my best friend. And I thank their sponsorship and support because the liberal art curriculum opened my brain at the time. It wasn't just music. It was the liberal arts, the whole package. I remember uh, vividly when we used to meet weekly at Dana Auditorium, which is now uh, the new community arts center, and we discuss global issues. And every student will uh, represent a country. And luckily, I was, you know, always representing Syria. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the liberal arts curriculum, I'm forever grateful for that. And if we compare it to other programs, I don't think Juilliard will offer residencies to their alumni composers, for example. So that personal relationship with the students is very, very important. And I'm forever grateful for that. And for all performing artists to have a liberal arts background is very important and life-enhancing. So what does it mean now to be the university's first composer in residence? Such an honor. This is a, an old university. It's almost like the Emory of Charlotte, you know. But what Queens is doing with embracing the arts, with the new arts center, it's, it's really a, an amazing leadership role. I feel I'm back home. I have a family, especially with what's going on with the COVID, with the pandemic, global pandemic. It gave me this sense of security as an artist. Musicians around the world, they were hit the hardest with this pandemic. You know, for example, my whole concert touring stopped. No more income for me as a performer, as a pianist. And here comes my school supporting me as a composer, saying, you know, stay home, keep composing, engaging orchestras around the world, be our composer. It's an amazing, amazing partnership for an artist. And just last week, for example, we engaged Maestra Marin Alsap and the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. Virtually, while I'm here in Atlanta, we recorded my fourth and fifth symphony in beautiful Vienna. Oh, my goodness. And with that, you know, the only thing I can say, thank you, Queens, and thanks to my family, you know. Well, Dan, why is this collaboration with Malik meaningful for Queens University? The answers are some obvious in allowing Queens to brand with such a prolific and well-known composer and artist that has been a standard bearer for music composition, for classical music, but importantly for important messages around peace and uh, the importance of remembering children in conflict and so many things that align with our mission. We hope that we will attract incredible scholars and performers and yes, composers. When you listen to Malik's work, the genius is just incredible. And, and it can be intimidating to think about how do you do that? But our students can now be inspired by being in workshops and rubbing shoulders when COVID permits to see that you know genius is, is about hard work and training and inspiration and finding one's voice and one identity. And you too have great opportunities to be that type of a creator. That wouldn't be possible, but for having a composer in residence. Malik, your music both 
mirrors your Syrian heritage and responds to threats to that very heritage in contemporary Syria. The new album opens with your first piano concerto. What is the context of this piece of music? It's a mix of emotion. My piano concerto embraces the voice of the children in refugee camps. Quote, unquote, I call them with a small age, the Holocaust survivors of modern history. They escaped chemical weapons. They escaped the terror of war to seek peace and hope in a refugee camp. So it's dedicated to them. It's dedicated to, to humanity uh, from the land that actually invented the musical notes. My ancestors in Ugarit invented the ABCs, the alphabet, as well as the first ever known musical notation, not to the people of Mesopotamia, but to humanity. And their contribution is still vivid with us. That's why we have now Beethoven's symphonies in writing, Mozart's, and so forth, and even Lady Gaga, you know, we have her movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my piano concerto, you know, has this mixed emotions of sadness, injustice, uh, but at the same time, it ends with hope. It has a message of unity. third movement is based on a folk music dance. It's a folk dance from Syria called the dance of my grandmother. It's a very well-known, vivid, happy dance. So I dedicate this to the brave women of Syria and to women everywhere, to the grandmothers, to the mothers of these children. That's my piano concerto. It's in three movements. Again, it has that beautiful vocabulary of uh, Mesopotamia, of Syria, with the message of unity and peace with what we are witnessing today, the modern Holocaust in Syria. You wrote Ya Allah, which also appears on this album, in Atlanta in 2012. What inspired Ya Allah? Ya Allah means, O God. In 2012, the people of Syria started chanting in their peaceful protest and demonstration, O God, O God, you are our only savior, realizing that the entire world has abandoned them. I don't know if we all recall when the United Nations decided to stop counting the victims of Syria. That was a huge disappointment to the Syrian people, to human rights activists, and to me personally. So as an American composer, as a human, 
it was my duty to be in solidarity with the people who are seeking peace and justice. I took the little small motif. Actually, I can play it for you. Oh, wonderful. It's, it's this one. Ya Allah, malna ghirak, ya Allah. So they were saying, oh God, we only have you to rely on. So they went to their basic humanity, to the creator of all mankind, and uh, pleading, please help us uh, when everybody abandoned us. And I also produced a little music video with it, showing how the current Hitler today, the dictator, is eradicating the, the churches, the synagogues, the, the mosques, the beauty of Syria. In Aleppo, we had the oldest synagogue on planet Earth, not destroyed, eradicated thousands of mosques, churches where you can hear the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic in, in churches in Syria. This is, to me, this is a crime against all humanity. And with that, all humanity should come in solidarity to help preserve and protect what is left in beautiful Syria. Another track on the recording called The Moonlight is based on one of the oldest songs in Islamic culture. Would you tell us about the song and how you incorporate it into the moonlight? Absolutely. The moonlight is based on one of the oldest chants in the Islamic culture, the beautiful Islamic culture. If you go to Alhamra or Kurtuba, you see what Muslims did. They, they invented the art of arabesque. Paintings and pictures are banned in the Muslim faith. So uh, therefore, they invented amazing, amazing, beautiful art called the arabesque, which I think Alhamra is the best example of that. So the moonlight is based on that chant when the people welcomed the prophet uh, Muhammad back home after his exile. When he came back to his city, the amazing story, they didn't welcome him with a verse from the Quran or a religious chant. They welcomed him with music, chanting, the moonlight has risen. It's a very well-known song. And to me, this is an amazing example of humanity and how music unites people. So for the people who actually welcoming a prophet through music, through chants, it's an amazing testament to what music can do, to the magic power of music. inspiration came, you know, with the Muslim ban that we had from the previous administration was such a shocking decision as an American to be that bold against certain people. Again, I felt a duty to present the beautiful side of that culture, of that religion through music, through the magic power of music. You know, at the end of the day, culture and music doesn't build walls. It builds bridges between nations, so we all unite in our common, beautiful values of humanity. Yes. 
All proceeds from this album will be donated to support Syrian children in refugee camps. Malik, how has the pandemic affected those living in Syrian refugee camps? You know, the pandemic affected all of us in certain ways. To me, I I feel lucky that I had this partnership with Queens as a composer. For the poor children in refugee camps, they were hit the most, you know, no vaccines, no social distancing, a harsh, harsh, harsh winter. This past winter, it has been really, really catastrophic. I call it a slow genocide, to be honest with you. Mm. You know, they're experiencing slow death. Uh, So the least I could do is to raise awareness and dedicate this album for much needed humanitarian aid to the children. And the last track on the album called Elegy, it's performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and conducted by Maestro David Furman. My hope through my music is it will touch people's hearts, decision makers, to put an end to this genocide and to put an end to the divisions in our communities and to start really build beautiful bridges and uh, come back to our beautiful American values, our human values of unity, peace, justice, and above all, truth. You know, at the end of the day, artist and what you're doing, Louis, as a journalist, is we are all seeking both truth and beauty through our work. And it's, it's a daily struggle. Today, it's, it's more important than ever to emphasize that and have the support needed to keep going in our journey. Malik Jandali, congratulations on your work, on your 11th recording, and Dr. Dan Lugo, thank you for joining us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Dan Lugo, president of Queen's University, and pianist composer Malik Chandali. His piano concerto recording with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra is available now. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A star-studded play filmed in Marietta last year is streaming now for a limited run on the Overture Plus streaming platform. Middletown was filmed at the Strand Theater in February of 2020. Before the play opened, I spoke with the Tony Award-winning director, Seth Greenleaf, and two stars of the play, Dee Dee Khan and Donnie Most. If you don't recognize those names, you may remember them as Frenchie from Greece and Ralph Malf in Happy Days. Director Seth Greenleaf began telling us about the story. Middletown is about two couples where the wives meet on their daughter's first day of kindergarten. 
they become fast friends. They introduce the husbands to each other begrudgingly, and they then spend the next 33 years meeting for dinner every Friday night. So it basically takes these two couples, and in a way their families, through the entire arc of a lifetime. Oh, it's sort of like a Sabbath ritual. Yeah, very much. <laughs> well, but the thing is, you said begrudgingly, it's because they're very unlike each other, these two couples. They probably never would have met had that not been this first day of school and one mommy's crying and the other's glad to be free, you know. But they help each other, begin having coffee, and then this tradition just continues. So they complemented each they other. They complemented That's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Yes. Didi and Dami, this is not your first time performing together. You both had roles in the Happy Day episode, Kiss Me Sickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was my first professional job. It was my first job in Hollywood, was on Happy Days, and I played Ralph Malf's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to be back together on stage 44 years later? It's kind of surreal. Um, we, you know, we, even though we did that episode, I don't know what year it was, like, yeah, 74, something like that. We hadn't seen each other <laughs> after that in all those years. We no. hadn't even seen each other. So then when we got back together and started working on this and rehearsing it, it was surreal. But and it almost felt like no time had passed. It was weird. Didn't it feel Absolutely. that way? Absolutely. No, I was just thrilled. I mean, he had many girlfriends on that show. We don't have to talk about that. But, <laughs> but you were one of the first. <laughs> oh, well, you were my first. <laughs> so Didi was your first girlfriend. In this play, there are no traditional props no set design. Why did the playwright choose this format? Because it's an emotional narrative and, and it just sort of becomes storytelling and that's actually a theme that, that's in the show. Uh, one of the characters is a writer, one of them loves to be read to, it's actually the other couple in it. That's sort of what brings them together during a reading at a book signing. And there's something very simple and delicate about the emotional complexities of the relationships. And so when Dan Clancy was writing it, there was this conversation about removing all the bells and whistles, allowing the audience to enter into the life of these characters without any of the traditional distractions. And so it was a concept, we tried it, it felt absolutely right. And what we find is the audience is very actively listening and leaning into the story, almost in the way that a blind person may have more attuned hearing by removing all of those elements, people are very, very much with the emotional threads between the characters. Mm. And it plays beautifully. Down to yes, the... the main character is Peg, and she's the one who's telling the story of her friendship with these other three people. One was her husband, and two are her best friends. And she says in the beginning, you know, this is how I like it, simple. And it's very much about who she is, that she likes things simple, that she likes her to, to share this story of her friendship with these people. And that's kind of the bookend. She's there by herself in the beginning, and she's there at the end by herself and telling the story of these people who have lived in her heart, you know? You're actually reading. But right, right. I, I imagine as actors... You've probably memorized the lines as that strange. Well, you know, the process was different in that without knowing that you were obligated to memorize it. So it was a different approach, a different process, so that there was never that demand. So you always have that script. You get familiar with it. As you do it, you get more and more familiar with it. And you might zero in on certain areas where you go, I really don't want to be reading at this particular point. I want to own, I need to own this speech more. So there, you strategically might decide certain places it's really important to, to have it more of that memory in, in the memory bank, so to speak. It was very interesting to see it because when we did the play the first time and, and I saw the audience reaction, you know, throughout the play and then at the end and the response and the, uh, the feedback, 
it, it affected them very much, the play. It, and it really, so that purity of storytelling that Seth is talking about, it really came to the fore. And uh, it was su- surprising. I mean, I knew, it was, I knew how good the play was, but I was surprised at the power that it, that it wound up uh, projecting. Is the story set in the present? It is. The, the bookend of Peg speaking to the audience would be considered present, and then everything else is really kind of a memory play. And one of the things that it requires from the actors is incredible agility because they jump between timelines and ages and storytelling that is directly to the audience to storytelling where they are within the scene and this changes at breakneck speed so one of the things they have to get used to is who are they talking to where are they how old are they and they move like lightning yeah one of the things that was um, interesting is that uh, Seth also choreographed some movement so that Sometimes we're not at the stands. We go back and sit at seats, and the lights change a little bit. So it, I had performed in Love, Loss, and What I Wore off-Broadway, which was at music stands. I did the vagina monologues uh, many times off-Broadway and around the country. So I had was accustomed to telling a story in that form, but Seth added some extra that we want we have to how do we know when we're going to go back <laughs> and he said don't worry you'll you'll figure it out and it gives the audience sometimes to just focus on one couple or the other and it's uh, it's quite quite beautiful so you are breaking fourth wall mm-hmm. and right. receding back into yes. that's right is yeah. it the third wall <laughs> yeah. what do you call it in they're, they're going between walls <laughs> very quickly okay don't get hurt <laughs> the tagline of this show is the ride of your life mm-hmm. along with the difficulties and the hardships that the story delves into what are the humorous moments can you share some of them okay well when we talk about getting older because as the play progresses we get older He's got the best line. <laughs> do I do I give away yeah, the line? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, they're talking about how did it hit me that I was getting older? How did the you char- know? Yeah, yeah one of the characters know? said, "Oh, you know, when I was on the subway and some young person came up to him and said, uh, oh, would you like my seat, sir?' You know, and and somebody else said it was, oh, when I realized I shouldn't be driving at night and yeah. and those kind of things. And then my character says, well, for me." It was when I would drop something. Before, I would just pick it up. Now, I look at it and say, do I really need it? (laughs) (laughs) And then mine is when I... um we go to Atlantic City a lot, and oh, I, well, Don was down there playing poker, and 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 I decide I'll take a bath in this beautiful imitation marble tub. Well, I got in all right, but for the life of me, I couldn't get out. And thank goodness he was able to. <laughs> that, he was that losing I lost. It. That I lost at the blackjack table, and I came up and, and hoisted, hoisted her me out. <laughs> <laughs> there are some zingers, and particularly between these two characters. But what's great is every joke is steeped in familiarity and everything is extremely relatable to anyone who has lived a life so i think that's probably even the strength of the humor too it's quite warming there is a lot of humor there's a lot i love pieces where there's such a nice balance between the comedy and the drama because that's what life is Mm -hmm. and the ride of the life is the ups and the downs and the scary things and the screaming and the and exhilaration. And it has all of that. It really mm. does. It's a beautiful piece. That's what attracted us to it and, and Adrian Zemed and Sandy Duncan. And Sandy Duncan. Duncan. Are, oh, she's fabulous. Are in the play with us. And actors love will love to do this. Oh, that's for sure. You are quite yeah. a lineup altogether. Well, on the topic of maturity and lives long lived, are you targeting a boomer demographic with this I think that's probably the most natural audience the reality is without targeting anyone whoever comes to see the show has a pretty powerful experience because Middletown being kind of an expression with two meanings here the play does sort of examine and spends the most time being somewhere around the middle of somebody's life where we're seeing where they came from we have a sense of where they're going and then the play does take us 
through to completion. But what's nice about that is whatever age an audience member is, is having a very particular relationship to the play. For me, certainly, as I look at it, I see things that my parents are going through that are reflected in the play watching them having lost their parents, watching them deal with certain issues of aging. So it will affect me in a very specific way. Someone who is older, whether they're a boomer or further still, they sort of see the reminiscing, nostalgic quality of the play and that kind of moment of how when you look back at it, I mean, here we have four lifetimes in 90 minutes, but that is how life and memory works. Mm -hmm. You can look back at an entire life and it feels like a second. Oh, yes. Yeah, then it, the play spans between pegs of 35 years old to 80, right? Yep. So anybody in that demographic will see it, feel it, sense it uh, through their lens. Dee Dee, how would you describe your character of Dottie? What I really like about Dottie is that she has no filter. And that's so unlike me, you know. I I don't know. I I would say that for most of my life, I, I kept myself in the good girl category, you know. So she's a bad girl, and she drinks. She loves her martinis and very much in love with her husband. She doesn't particularly get along with her daughter. I mean, she always... She right from the very beginning, she says, you know, I love her. She probably loves me, but I embarrass her. And she's a teacher. She's much better with 26 kids than with one kid. So that's not like me. I mean, I love children. and mm. So it's fun to play. And, and what is your onstage marriage like? Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's, it's one that just feels, you know, like you're lucky that you found each other, soulmates, I guess. And, yeah. um, and my character, he's, you know, he's a blue-collar kind of guy from New Jersey and, um, and just says it like it is. And he doesn't like pretension or any of that sort of facade and and likes to cut right to the chase and they they speak each other's language and they just feel like great friends really great friends as well as you know like there's a scene where they're finishing watching a movie at a no a, a show and they're in the parking lot and waiting for it to clear out and Don starts getting some ideas you know mm -hmm. to uh do what they did when they were teenagers and so we'll never fit in the back seat what are you talking <laughs> and about then I go, so we'll keep the doors open <laughs> oh that is hilarious it's that kind of a but relationship don't you tell anyone you'll be a dead deedle <laughs> <laughs> you have to come and see the play to understand that joke <laughs> seth i am very surprised by your age because reading over your credits, it's this, this list. Plethora, this plethora. Of yeah, it's not just a list. It's like a what's what that's won Broadway Awards. I mean, we're talking Book of Mormon, 9 to 5. And those are just two. What attracted you to Middletown? Ooh. Mm -hmm. Simple honesty, I think. It's funny, it was given to me by my father. Sometimes we work together, sometimes we don't, but he was the one that got me involved in the industry. And the reason that resume is so long is because I, I would say I informally started at nine years old by his side, That's grew right. up in the business. And so that, you know, was a, and in fact, worked with uh, Dee Dee's husband uh, at one point very early in life. So I, very fortunate and learned a tremendous amount by osmosis. And he and I kind of have this thing where, if we both like it, because we come from very different places, he's almost like a Don character, very uh, gut, uh, honest, you know, I don't get it sort of a person. I'm maybe a little more esoteric, trained in this, and so when we from our different points in the spectrum agree on material, we usually see that as a very good sign. And he said, I want you to read this play. And I think I was in the middle of a whole bunch of things. I was like, oh, God. Not right now. He's, no, no, please, please, just, you know, read 10 pages, because he's smart enough to know me. He says, read 10 pages. I did. Started it all the way to the end. I was in tears. Called him with a sense of perspective and a sense of wanting to honor our relationship in that moment. And that's what the play really gives you. I think the one thing that audiences always walk away from is a sense of perspective and a sense of what matters in life and how important those moments between us really are because at the end of a lifetime when you go back and look through it all those are the moments that you see in your memories 
and it hit me very deeply. I call the play insidious, but I mean it in the best way possible in that like a kind of a slow poison, you're laughing, you're having fun, but boy, it just spirals its way down into your heart. Tony Award-winning director Seth Greenleaf with actors Didi Khan and Donnie Most. You can see their performance of Middletown on the Overture Plus streaming platform through April 4th. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright says thank you for listening. Author Amy Timberlake's latest children's book, Skunk and Badger, tells the story of two unlikely animal friends. The book was illustrated by renowned artist John Classen. When I spoke with the author in September via Zoom, Amy Timberlake began describing the main characters. Badger is an important rock scientist, or at least that's how he thinks of himself. And he, every day, he goes into his rock room and he sits at his rock stool and he sits at his rock desk and he adjusts his lamp and he looks at rocks every single day. This is his everyday life. And then one day there's a knock at the front door and it's the skunk and the skunk is going to be his roommate and he has not heard about this at all. And it's a, it's a terrible shock. As you might imagine, things don't go completely well. And so this story is kind of, a, I would describe it sort of as Wallace and Gromit kind of meets Winnie the Pooh and <laughs> a little bit of the odd couple in it. Yeah, I love so, it. So something like that. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, Badger is an important rock scientist, capital I, capital R, capital S. He lives in a home made available to him by his Aunt Lula. Scientific funding, I'm quoting here, scientific funding, a long-term residency, a grant of time and space. And he turns that home into a shrine for rocks and research. How does skunk contrast to badger? (laughs) Yeah, skunk is completely spontaneous and loves knowing other animals. Immediately, he's moving from another town, but he moves in and he's already met people. He's he's met everybody in North Twist. And so he moves in and he's just like a gust, actually a wind gust, comes into that house, into that brownstone. And he moves into a room, he flattens boxes, and then, of course, he invites all these other animals into this house. And this house is just, it's totally quiet, except for a rock tumbler, which makes lots and lots of noise. But other than that, it's just Badger and his cereal in his kitchen. You know, that's what he eats every day. He just eats cereal. And then he goes back to his rock room. So, yeah, it, I mean, skunk is just completely opposite, which which is definitely what you want when you're telling a story. You want the two characters to be on the opposite ends. And then, yeah, the thing is, is they find ways to come together eventually through very many hard things. Like it's actually a it's actually a hard journey for Badger. Well, and Skunk, too, in his own way. How does Skunk begin to win Badger's admiration? Well, through his cooking. I think it's straight through his stomach. He's a very good cook. He's very improvisational in his cooking and a little wild in his cooking, but it is so tasty. And those muffins, in fact, he makes the best breakfast ever. Yeah, his whole his whole thing is that breakfast is the best meal of the day. He sets it up. He's got a candle and he's got fresh muffins and then there's always some great breakfast. And so Badger starts eating something other than that pawful of cereal every day and I don't know, I think things are never the same again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you use the the word tip clot instead of tiptoed. And 
<laughs> the fact that they are animals really doesn't matter much in terms of interaction and their general worldviews, but there are some important lessons in here, seriousness in Skunk and Badger. How does the story address stereotypes, bullying, and prejudice? Oh, yeah. Well, I started writing this story. It's a very humorous and very light story in some ways. But I was, at the time I started writing it, it was during the Syrian refugee crisis. That's when I started it. So I was reading all these news articles about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I sort of simultaneously, I was working on this light story. I just started it. As I was writing that first, the very first chapter of Skunk and Badger. So Skunk and Badger is told in Badger's point of view, but Skunk comes, he knocks on the door and he basically, the reason, it quickly becomes clear that the reason Aunt Lula has offered the home to Skunk is because he doesn't have one. It's partly because he's a skunk. I mean, it's, it's hard to like skunks. I mean, they spray you. So there's this thing. But only in this skunk's case, only in the direst of circumstances, yeah. he points out. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I, when you really think about other animals, you think, well, I mean, skunks are actually quite gentlemanly. You will smell, you will smell horrible, but they won't say bite you. So, <laughs> so overall, you know, they leave you educated that you should leave a skunk alone and you're completely fine, just smelly. So anyway, so I was reading about the Syrian, yeah, I was reading about the Syrian refugee crisis and I was thinking about homelessness actually. So in the first chapter, Skunk says that he used to have a home, but he doesn't have one now. And when I wrote that line, I realized, oh, this is a more serious story. But my process is basically that I just let these things ride <laughs> until, you know, as I work through draft after draft after draft, I just let these things remain in them and see what comes of it. And it actually does resolve itself. Because he's a skunk, you know that probably he's going to spray so at some point in the story. And then this is going to lead to a great problem. <laughs> I mean, it's just a bad, it's a bad thing. Like the smell of skunks is not pleasant. Then, you know, things are said that are really, they're really hurtful. I mean, really hurtful. And I felt like at some point to get the story to the end, which I am trying not to tell too much. To get the story to the end, I, I had to feel like the resolution between these two characters was actually believable. Otherwise, that there was going to be an apology that felt like a real apology with sort of an action that suggested that something was given up in order to bring the two characters together. And I felt like, okay, I found something that actually worked for me. Yeah, so that's kind of how that all happened. I don't know if that was exactly answered your question, but... No, it does, because um, I hadn't thought about homelessness or immigration. It certainly applies. I could see where misunderstanding, misconceptions about refugees would apply here. I also thought about racial injustice and how misunderstood this very fine creature is by Badger, who does have his awakening, if you will. The wit and humor throughout this story are marvelous. And the publisher indicates that the target age group for readers of Skunk and Badger is 8 to 12 years old. With that in mind, I wondered about some of the clever references, such as 
<laughs> skunk reading Shakespeare and telling ba- Badger about Henry V. Skunk is a fabulous cook. He put sun-dried tomatoes and olives in his baked potatoes. My mouth was watering at that. <laughs> the self-seriousness and pun of Badger's signature to his aunt, the end of his letter, he signs on the precipice of an important rock discovery. (laughs) And my favorite, Amy, a bookstore for chickens that has a shelf for chiclet. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Yes. (laughs) Now, are these sophisticated examples of humor meant for young readers or their parents? Well, I think, all right, I will say that one of my absolute favorite memories growing up is being read to by uh, my parents. And my dad in particular had this great laugh. And I actually have this visceral experience of sitting next to my dad being very young. And he would read a story and he would start laughing about something in the story and I would be next to him and I could feel him move as he laughed. (laughs) And I just, I would laugh too, I'd always laugh. One of the things I really wanted to do with this book was make something that an adult could read with a child and would laugh and the child would get the sense of the adult laughing and they could laugh with the adult at the same time, even if they didn't quite get the humor. And that it would be just this memory of sharing a story and sharing laughter. And then, you know, maybe you talk about what that is. Just starting those conversations with kids and there's gonna be some stuff that they won't quite get, but I wanted everyone in the family to be able to enjoy this story together, all ages. Author Amy Timberlake, her latest children's book is Skunk and Badger. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be an original member of the group Celtic Woman. Singer-songwriter Chloe Agnew has had a solo career for a while now. She'll perform at Red Clay Foundry in Duluth this weekend. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Find archived interviews and shows on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.